Life doesn't just magically come to us. We have to make ourselves available to it. There is a lifestyle that allows us to receive the life of God. I know that if I will live more intimately with Jesus and follow his voice, I will have a much better chance of finding the life I long for. I know it. If I will just listen to his voice and let him set the pace, if I will cooperate in my own transformation, I will be a much happier man. And so a new prayer has begun to arise within me. I'm asking God, what is the life you want me to live? Welcome to the Ransom Dart Podcast. I'm Alan Arnold, and we are in week two of a four-part series from John Eldridge's book, Walking with God. Now, this is a book that is written unlike any other that John has done. It's a series of stories of what it looks like to walk with God over the course of about a year. This week, we're going to go into the topics of learning to listen. We're also going to talk about what it means to be whole and holy. And how do we make room for joy? This is John Eldridge reading from his book, Walking with God. On learning to listen, we're invited to become followers of Jesus. Not just believers, followers. There is a difference. Follower assumes that someone else is doing the leading, as in, He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. He goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. The Bible invites us to an intimacy with God that will lead us to the life we are meant to live if we follow him. I will instruct you, he says, and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you, Psalm 32, verse 8. God promises to guide us in the details of our lives. In fact, the psalm continues, Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by a bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. What would it be like to yield to God in the details of our lives? What would it be like to follow his counsel and instruction in all the small decisions that add up to the life we find ourselves living. It would be amazing. I think we would find ourselves saying, as David did, you have made known to me the path of life. Psalm 16, verse 11. This is the privilege and the joy of sheep that belong to a good shepherd. He leads them well. He leads them to life. So, back to the question, what is the life you want me to live? It's a good question. Maybe one of the most important questions we could ever bring to God. He created us, after all. He knows why. He knows what's best for each of us. If we could learn from him the life he wants us to live, the details, the pace of life, the places we're to invest ourselves, and the places we are not to invest ourselves we would be in his will. And there we would find life. But it's too big a question to ask. I find I have to start with something smaller. This weekend, the first of our summer vacation, my simple question was this. What would you have us do? 
Should we go to the ranch or stay home? The ranch for us is a place of rest and restoration. At least, that's what it's supposed to be. I knew I had to start there with one simple question. This is step one in learning to listen to the voice of God. Ask simple questions. You cannot start with huge and desperate questions such as, should I marry Ted? Or do you want me to sell the family business tomorrow? Or do I have lung cancer? Paranoia rarely enables me to hear God's voice. See, that's like learning to play the piano by starting with Mozart. Learning to ski by doing double black diamonds. There is way too much emotion involved, too much swirling around in our heads. I find that to hear the voice of God, we must be in a posture of quiet surrender. Starting with small questions helps us learn to do that. Remember the story of the prophet Elijah after his triumph on Mount Carmel? He ran and hid in a cave, and there God spoke to him. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire came a gentle whisper. 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 11 and 12. A gentle whisper. A still, small voice, as some translations have it. To hear that gentle whisper, we have to settle down. Shut out all the drama. Quiet our hearts. Now, as we grow in our personal holiness... We can be quiet and surrendered even in the major questions, but that takes time and maturity. Don't ask that of yourself as you're starting out. Begin with simple questions. I can sit quietly with the question, what do you want for this weekend? Should we go to the ranch or stay home? It's not a life and death matter. I'm not desperately hoping to hear what I secretly want to hear. There's not a great deal of drama around it. So what I'll do is sit with the question before God for several minutes to help me stay present to God and not begin to wander. Did I take the socks out of the dryer? Is the phone call tomorrow with my publisher? Where did I leave my cell phone? I'll repeat the question quietly in my heart. God, do you want us to go to the ranch or stay home? I'm settling myself before God. Do you want us to go to the ranch or stay home? Settle down and be present to God. Pause and listen. Repeat the question. Should we go to the ranch or stay home? What is your counsel? And while I'm doing this, I'm also noticing my heart's posture on the matter. Am I willing to hear whatever it is God wants to say? That is absolutely critical. If I can only hear an answer that agrees with what I want to hear, then I'm not in a posture of surrender to God's will. And it will be hard for me to hear him at all or to trust what I do here, especially if it is the answer I'm looking for. There is no more decisive issue when it comes to hearing the voice of God than the issue of surrender, which is beautiful, really. We're drawn to God in search of guidance, but we come away with a deeper holiness because we're learning to surrender. Sometimes I'll even say as I'm listening, Lord, I will accept whatever it is you want to say to me.
that helps me bring my soul to a posture of quiet surrender. So, there are the basics. Start with small questions. Repeat the question quietly in your heart to God. Bring yourself to a posture of quiet surrender. And let me add this. I'm assuming that we're talking about matters of counsel or guidance that are not directly addressed by Scripture. You don't need to ask God whether or not to commit murder or to run off with your neighbor's television. He already spoke to you about those things. You don't need to ask him if you should rest. He spoke to us about that too. But sometimes we don't know where or when or exactly how to rest. And so we need to seek further direction by listening. Now, if I don't seem to be able to hear God's voice in that moment, sometimes what I will do is sort of try on one answer and then the other. Still in a posture of quiet surrender, I ask the Lord, is it yes? You want us to go? Pause. In my heart, I'm trying it on, letting it be as though this is God's answer. We should go? Pause and listen. Or is it no? You want us to stay home. Pause and let this be his answer. We should stay home. Pause and listen again. Quite often, we can sense God's direction on a matter before we hear actual words. You may have heard someone use the expression, I had a check in my spirit. It refers to an internal pause, a hesitancy, a sudden reluctance to proceed. The Spirit of God may be impressing you with the will of God by making one answer seem very unappealing or wrong somehow, arresting you, stopping you. You see, our spirit is in union with the Spirit of God, and he often makes his will known to us deep within us before it forms into words. By trying on the possible answers, I find it sometimes enables me to come into alignment with his Spirit, and over time, those deep impressions begin to form into words. A simple yes or no can be so encouraging as we learn to listen. And I heard yes, go, it will be good. Whole and holy. And now it's raining. I'm pretty darn sure God told me to come, and now it's raining. Don't let this throw you. Things may not unfold the way you think they will when you're following God. Remember, he's after both our transformation and our joy. The one hangs upon the other. I needed rest more than I knew, but I am so addicted to busyness, I was about to turn this gift of rest into a week of chores. Fix the fence, paint the door, get her done. So he has to pin me down on the porch so that I don't wreck the gift he's trying to give. And now that I am pinned down, I can see what God is bringing to the surface. I am acutely aware of my drivenness. If I keep up this pace, I will burn out, have a heart attack, go down in flames. And now I can walk with God even more intimately as I cooperate with him in my transformation. He's got me here on the porch so that he can bring to the surface just how compelled I am. And so that together we can explore why. This rain shows no signs of letting up. Looks like we have hours to discover what God is after. Pause. You do know what he's after in your life, don't you? Maybe that's why we stay so busy, to avoid knowing so we can avoid dealing with it. 
And you do know that the quick fix doesn't ever work. Simply telling myself, you are too busy, John, you've got to slow down, is about as effective as telling an addict to quit. Has it worked for you? There are forces driving the way I live, reasons and compulsions written deep in my soul. I know where my pushing and striving are from. They come from unbelief, from some deep fear that it's all up to me. Life is up to me. I've got to make as much headway as I can before the bottom drops out. Make hay while the sun shines, because it isn't always going to shine. And what's that underlying dread? God is not just after behavior modification, as in stop it, but real and deep and lasting change. And that brings me to another assumption that we must hold if we would walk with God. True holiness requires the healing of our souls. Listen to this from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. How blessed is God, and what a blessing He is! He's the Father of our Master, Jesus Christ, and takes us to the high places of blessing in Him. Long before He laid down earth's foundations, He had us in mind had settled on us as the focus of his love, to be made whole and holy by his love. That's from the message. Whole and holy. The two go hand in hand. Oh, how important this is. You can't find the holiness you want without deep wholeness. And you can't find the wholeness you want without deep holiness. You can't simply tell the meth addict to quit. She does need to quit, but she requires profound healing to be able to quit. You can't just tell a raging man to stop losing his temper. He would love to stop. He'd give anything to stop. He doesn't know how. He doesn't know all the forces within him that swell up and overwhelm him with anger. Telling him to stop raging is like telling him to hold back the sea. For too long, there have been two camps in Christendom. One is the holiness or the righteousness crowd. They are the folks holding up the standard, preaching a message of moral purity. The results have been mixed. Some morality and a great deal of guilt and shame. Very little lasting change comes from this approach. Now, hey, I am all for purity. It's just that you can't get there without the healing of your soul. Listen to this from Hebrews chapter 12. God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. That's verses 10 through 13. Healed, as in fixed, restored, made whole. The Bible says we can't hope to walk the path God would have us walk without the healing of our souls. Now, the other major camp is the grace camp. Their message is that we can't hope to satisfy a holy God, but we are forgiven. We are under grace. And praise the living God, we are under grace. But what about holiness? 
What about deep personal change? Paul says, For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. Romans 6.14 He's assuming that there's a certain kind of grace that will set us free from sin's power over our daily lives. My drivenness and compulsion will ruin me if they continue. God knows that. He also knows what I need. Sitting here on the porch, I'm asking him to come into the deep places of my soul and heal me. I know, at least in part, what my drivenness is rooted in. Early on in my life, I found myself alone. It was a deep and profound wounding. No boy is meant to be on his own. But that wounding led to a sinful resolution. I will make it on my own. I felt that life was up to me. That was my wounding. I resolved to live as though life were up to me. That was my sin. The path to freedom from all this pushing and striving involves both repentance and healing so that I can be made whole and holy by his love. Listen to Jesus. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Matthew thirteen fifteen. Heal them. Jesus yearned for his people to turn back to him so that he could heal them. The otherwise means that if they weren't so hard-hearted, they would turn to him and he would heal them. This truth is so essential to your view of the gospel. It will shape your convictions about nearly everything else. God wants to restore us. Our part is to turn, to repent as best we can, but we also need healing. As Ephesians says, God chose us to make us whole and holy through his love. God will make known to us the path of life if we follow him. And as we do, we will find along that path our need for wholeness and holiness. And so I'm praying and I'm journaling, Jesus, forgive me. I ask your forgiveness of this deep commitment to make life work on my own for all of my striving and pushing, and for all of the unbelief that propels me. Forgive me, and I ask you to heal me of this. Heal the places in my soul that have so long felt alone, felt that life was up to me. And as I'm praying this, I remember something God has been saying to me for some time. Or rather, he speaks it again. It addresses the deep fears in my heart, speaks to the core of this issue. He says, my favor will never leave you. And a soft, cool breeze caresses my face. Making Room for Joy A few years ago, a woman with a sensitive spirit and a keen eye for what God is up to pulled me aside to offer this warning. The battle in your life is against your joy. It hit me like a Mack truck. But of course, suddenly, life made sense. The hassles, the battles, the disappointments, the losses, the resignation. Why hadn't I seen it before? I mean, 
I face a lot of different skirmishes day to day, but now the plot, the diabolical plot behind them all came into view. I began to see how the enemy was first trying to take away all joy from my life, wear me down. Then, weary and thirsty, I would be so vulnerable to some counterfeit joy. It would start with mild addictions, then build to something worse. Thus, he would destroy all that God has done in and through me. It was so obvious. Of course. Her observation became a revelation, became a rescue. The smoke alarm sounding off before the house goes up in flames. For several days, the whole world made sense in light of joy. But in the day-to-day grind of the ensuing months, all that clarity slipped away, completely. Joy as a category seemed irrelevant. Nice, but unessential, like owning a hot tub. And distant, too. The hot tub is in Fiji. (laughs) Wouldn't it be nice? Ain't gonna happen. Life's not really about joy. I've got all this stuff that has to get done. The mail is stacking up. I haven't paid the bills in two months. The service engine soon light came on in the Honda. Joy? Life's about surviving and getting a little pleasure. That's what seemed true. Really now, how much do you think about joy? Do you see it as essential to your life? Something God insists on? Yesterday morning, I went for a horseback ride with my sons, Sam and Blaine. The sunlight was filtering down through the aspens as we followed an old game trail we'd never taken before. Our golden retriever, Scout, was running on ahead of us. The horses seemed to be enjoying the ride as much as we were. It was cool under the canopy of the aspens. Quiet. Timeless. In the evening, Blaine and I took the canoe over to a high mountain reservoir fed by a beautiful rushing stream. We paddled about a half mile from the put-in back to the inlet. The trout were rising. Not another soul was around. For an hour, we caught rainbows on dry flies, surrounded by mountains, the rushing inlet the only sound of the evening. And on the way home, we saw a fox and a porcupine. It was an incredible day. One of those rare and glorious days that become over time the icon of summer vacation in our memories. So why don't I wake with a joyful heart today? Joy was just here. Where did it go? I feel like I met a stranger on an airplane. And we clicked. We swapped some stories, had a few drinks, laughed together. Then I drove home to an empty house. It's like that. I had an encounter with joy. It touched a longing. And now I begin to realize I haven't even given ten minutes to joy, let alone pursued it as essential to my life. It has to do with agreements I've made without even knowing it. By agreements, I mean those subtle convictions we come to, assent to, give way to, or are raised to assume are true. It happens down deep in our souls where our real beliefs about life are formed. Something or someone whispers to us, life is never going to turn out the way you'd hoped, or nobody's going to come through, or God has forsaken you. And something in us responds, That's true. We make an agreement with it, and a conviction is formed. It seems so reasonable. I think we come to more of our beliefs in this way than maybe any other. 
subtle agreements. Anyhow, I began to realize that what I've done for most of my life is resign myself to this idea. I'm really not going to have any real joy. And from that resignation, I've gone on to try and find what I could have. Women do this in marriage. They see that they are not going to have any real intimacy with their husbands, so they lose themselves in soaps or tabloids or romance novels. Men find their work a sort of slow death, so they get a little something in the bar scene each night, have a few beers with the boys, watch the game. Joy isn't even a consideration. Just settle for relief. Now, to be fair, joy isn't exactly falling from the sky these days. We don't go out to gather it each morning like manna. It's hard to come by. Joy seems more elusive than winning the lottery. We don't like to think about it much because it hurts to allow ourselves to feel how much we do long for joy and how seldom it drops by. But joy is the point. I know it is. God says that joy is our strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength, Nehemiah 8.10. I think, my strength? I don't even think of it as my occasional boost. But yeah, now that I give it some thought, I can see that when I have felt joy, I have felt more alive than at any other time in my life. Pull up a memory of one of your best moments, the day at the beach, your eighth birthday. Remember how you felt. Now, think what life would be like if you felt like that on a regular basis. Maybe that's what being strengthened by joy feels like. It would be good. I take up a concordance and read a bit on joy. My heart leaps for joy. Psalm 28, 7. Wow, when was the last time my heart leapt for joy? I don't even remember. You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. Psalm 4, verse 7. I believe David when he says this. I believe God does that. I just can't say I really know firsthand what he's talking about. I turn to the Gospels. What does Jesus have to say about joy? I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and so that your joy may be complete. John fifteen eleven. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. John 16, verse 24. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. John 17, 13. Joy complete. The full measure of his joy. That's what Jesus wants for us? I'm almost stunned. I can't believe it has come down to joy. It's so obvious now and yet it makes me really uncomfortable. Probably because it's too close to my heart to what I long for. Joy is such a tender thing. I think we resent it. We avoid it because it feels too vulnerable to allow ourselves to admit the joy we long for, but do not have. And so I pray, Jesus, I have no idea where to go from here, but I invite you in. Take me where I need to go. I know this is connected to the life that you want me to live. 
You've been listening to the Ransom Tart Podcast. I'm Alan Arnold, and I hope you will join us next week for part three in the Walking with God series. 